Good morning. So last week we saw God unleash the first of the ten plagues upon the people of Egypt for refusing to let Israel go. He turned the Nile into blood. It killed all the fish. It forced the Egyptians to dig along the banks of the Nile for water. It remained that way for seven days. The land stank. What God showed was that he was Lord over their false gods, Osiris and Hopi. And that's, just to remind you, that's what these plagues are about. God defeating the, the gods of Egypt. But there's something else that we need to see in these plagues as a whole. There's a progress that takes place in these plagues. A progress. First, there is a progress in the severity of the plagues. With each disobedience, God judges the Egyptians more and more severely. So the first three plagues attack the Egyptians' comfort. Their Nile turning into blood, the frogs, the gnats. The second three plagues attack their possessions. Uh, the flies that ruined their land, the diseased livestock, the, the painful sores on their bodies. And we're going to see that the last four plagues attack their livelihood. So devastating hail, devouring locusts, darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. So the plagues get progressively worse. But secondly, there's also a progress in the revelation of Yahweh. Um, with each plague, we learn more about the Lord. In the first plague, we learn that God is a God of justice, that lex talionis. The Egyptians threw their male babies into the Nile, and so God turned the Nile into blood. And boys and girls, you have, many of you have memorized a verse about the justice of God, haven't you? Deuteronomy 32.4. Many of you have come up to me afterwards and have said this verse. The rock, his work is... Maybe you haven't memorized it. <laughs> the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. So that's what we learned in the first plague, that God is a God of justice. Here in this second plague, God is going to reveal himself in a way again where even Pharaoh would know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So our God is the Lord of the animal world, the Lord of the underworld, and the Lord of the new world. That's our outline. That's where we're going this morning. So let's look first of all at Lord of the animal world. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Now, before this even takes place, this threat is absolutely amazing. Frogs. God is telling Pharaoh that he can summon the beasts of the earth at his will. 
I was talking to a brother just the other day. Their family is about to get a puppy. And in order to make that puppy a hunting dog, much training is required. Hours and hours of training. Dogs can be trained. Uh, we can train dogs to hunt, to guide the blind, to sniff out drugs, to herd livestock, to do search and rescue. And that type of training has a name. It's called operant conditioning. Operant conditioning, where an animal learns to associate a behavior with a consequence, whether good or bad. God built that into the animals, some of them. Do you notice that the animals here that God summons in these plagues, these specific animals, these specific in insects, are the type of creatures that operant conditioning doesn't work on. Frogs, second plague. Gnats, third plague. Flies, fourth plague. You can't train these type of creatures. And even if you were to say, okay, but maybe in the future at some point, operant conditioning would work, well, fine. It would still require intense labor and hundreds and hundreds of hours of training. But God threatens Pharaoh here with an immediate, spontaneous frog invasion. Let my people go or I will plague all your country with frogs. God doesn't need to train these frogs. He doesn't need to hypnotize these frogs. He doesn't need to drug these frogs. He simply summons them and they come. I can't even get my little chihuahua to do that when she's being stubborn. She runs the other way. And God doesn't do this with one frog. He does this with millions of frogs. Look at verse 3. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. The Verb for swarm in the Hebrew is to increase, to multiply, to be innumerable. It's the same word that God used in the beginning when he created all the creatures of the sea. Genesis 1.20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the waters increase with multitudes of innumerable creatures. So here, God summons an innumerable frog army, millions of frogs to invade the Egyptians. And that brings us then to our first principle this morning. Every creature on earth is enlisted in the Lord's army, and, he, and they do whatsoever he wills. Every creature, bird, beast, fish, insect on earth is enlisted in the Lord's army, and they do whatsoever he wills. He's sovereign. As Calvinists, we say, yeah, he's sovereign over our salvation. Amen. Hallelujah. He's sovereign over insects and frogs and animals. He didn't merely create the animal world. He controls them. He commands them. He summons them to do whatsoever he wants them to do. And this is all over Scripture. He sent hornets 
to drive out Israel's enemies. Exodus 23:28. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. How did they get the promised land? Through hornets. He sent snakes to punish Israel. Numbers 21.6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the peoples, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. He caused a donkey to talk to stop a disobedient prophet. Numbers 22.28, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you? that you have struck me these three times. That, that story is one of the funniest stories in the Bible. Balaam doesn't say, what? what? What are you talking about? He argues with the donkey. I think you have to ask, who's the real donkey in that situation, right? God summoned ravens to feed the hungry prophet Elijah. 1 Kings 17, 4, you shall drink from the brook, the Lord says, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. He caused hungry lions not to eat his faithful people. Daniel 6, 22, my God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. But conversely, he sent other lions to kill other people who were disobedient. Uh, 2 Kings 17, 25, at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. He caused a whale to swallow a disobedient prophet. Jonah 1, 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And then he caused that same whale to spit him out. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. There is not a creature on earth, not a frog, not a firefly, not a lion, not a lamb, not a crocodile, not a cricket, that he does not command. Dear congregation, this is the God of the Exodus. The God who can summon every creature to obey his will. What does that reveal to you about the God that you serve? Well, one thing we shouldn't conclude that it reveals, we shouldn't conclude that God needs the aid of these animals, as if he needed these frogs. God doesn't need frogs or any creature at all. Westminster Confession of Faith 5 Three says, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means like frogs, uh, yet he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. Or as the Puritan George Swinnick says, whether God of little or great means, means or no means, it is all one to him, for he does as much when he has means as when he has none. God doesn't need the animals. So then why does he use them? Well, consider that in those examples that I just gave you, the Lord uses his animal army to the aid of our redemption. Now, that might sound strange to you, but Hebrews chapter 1 talks about how he employs the angels to serve those who will inherit salvation. He uses angels 
And in all those examples, those animals aren't just doing random things. They're advancing the cause of our redemption. The Lord sent animals to feed prophets, to warn and punish the wicked, to drive out enemies, to prevent evil, to redirect disobedient prophets, to preach the gospel. Nineveh heard the gospel instrumentally because of a whale. Animals are not just here for our food and clothing and help us in labor. Certainly those are great blessings. But this passage here makes us look just a little bit further. God has used his animal army throughout redemptive history to promote righteousness and to punish wickedness, to preserve gospel preaching, to protect his people, to execute judgments on the earth. That's the God we serve. A God who not only uses angels to aid us, but animals. So that's our first point, that God is Lord over the animal world. Secondly, he is Lord of the underworld. You know there's something more going on here than mere frogs, right? This was an assault against Egypt's worship of the frog goddess Hecate. John Currid notes here, quote, The Egyptians regarded the frog as a symbol of divine power and a representation of fertility. One of the major goddesses of Egypt was Hecate, who is depicted as a human female with a frog's head, end quote. Now, that, that sounds very attractive, doesn't it? I got to say, this, this is so... God hands these idolatrous heathen nations over to the absurdity of their own worship. Last week, we saw that the God they worshiped was a transgender, bearded, pregnant man. And this week, it's a woman with a frog's head. Hecate was the goddess of sex. This frog princess, they believed, helped women in their fertility. And frogs were a symbol of natural fertility because they regularly and normally bred each year in abundance. And so do the math. Do the theological math. What does an out-of-control frog population in Egypt tell you? That's right, that this frog princess was not in control of the frogs. And these this, this frog population was absolutely out of control. All three social statuses were affected. The king, the middle class, and the slaves. Look at verse 3. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, speaking to Pharaoh, and into your be- bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants, the slaves, and your people. Those are the ordinary folk. Into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. All three statuses were affected. Now, children, boys and girls, when I was um, your age, I thought that this plague was the coolest plague. Um, I could see where the river of blood would, would stink and the flies and the gnats and all those things, but this was the cool one. Frogs are cool, man. They jump. They catch things with their tongue. They swim. 
but I was, as I was lying in my bed the other night, I was thinking, man, this plague would be awful. Um, it says that they were in their beds. Think about that tonight when you go to bed. Cuddling up to a nice slimy frog. How could they sleep? Uh, not only were they, they in their beds, but they were in their ovens and their kneading bowls. Imagine pulling down a box of cereal out of your cupboard and this you know, fro- frog wave comes out at the same time and you open up the cereal box and the frogs are in the cereal box. But it's even worse than that. Look at verse 4. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your servants. The frogs were climbing up the Egyptians. They were on their persons. They were climbing up their legs. They were jumping on their lap. They were on their face. You couldn't read a book. You couldn't have a normal conversation. You couldn't rest anywhere. And they were, they were, they were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. Look at the end of verse 6. The frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The word covered is used elsewhere in Exodus to signify a complete submersion. The locust uh, covered the land so the land couldn't be seen, Exodus 10.5. Pharaoh and his men were covered by the sea when the walls of water fell down upon them. So the, the frog army had submerged and filled the land so you couldn't even see the ground. They were climbing up on top of each other. So everywhere you walked, popping little exploding frogs were happening underneath your feet. Where did these frogs come from? Now, when, when Aaron performs this miracle in verse 5 and 6, this is probably after Pharaoh had refused the threat. So 5 and 6 says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools. Make the frogs come out out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. We were talking about this in our elders' meeting the other night, and I'm the one who asked. I said, wait a second, how can the frogs come from the river since the river was filled with blood for seven days and all the fish died? Well, the God who turned the Nile into blood doesn't need pre-existing frogs does he? This was spontaneous generation. He called them forth into existence. They came from the waters, though. The important question here is not how, the the exact way that God did it, but what do these frogs represent? And I think there are, are three clues to what these frogs represent. First, Notice that these frogs came from the water itself, the Nile, the rivers, the canal, the pools. They came from the darkness of the deep. Water in Scripture can signify life, but water can also signify the grave, the abyss, and death. The psalmist in Psalm 69, 1 and 2 says, Save me, O God, for waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. 
I suspect that this is the reason why Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 says that in the new heavens and the new earth, the sea will be no more. Not necessarily because there won't be a sea literally, but it will no longer be a sign of the dark abyss of death. So that's our first clue. These frogs came from the place Scripture associates with death. Our second clue is that frogs are unclean and detestable according to Old Testament dietary laws. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 11, 9 and 12. You know, it, when we look at these dietary laws, we're thankful that God, you know, made pork clean. There's other animals that he made clean, that he just made clean in the New Testament. We're like, yeah, I'll probably stick away from that one. Um, Leviticus 11, 9 through 12 says, These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures, frogs, in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You should not eat any of their flesh. You shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. Now, this is amplified in verses 41 through 47 when he says, if the Israelites ate these beasts, they would become unclean and they would be defiled. So that's our second clue, that these frogs were detestable and would defile and make those unclean who ate them in the Old Testament. Clue number three is that these frogs are associated with demonic spirits. Uh, please turn to Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. And I know there's you know, different opinions about when the book of Revelation is fulfilled, so uh, let me just say, whether Revelation happened in the past or whether it's still waiting a future fulfillment, the lesson here is still precisely the same. Revelation 16, 13 and 14. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits. So John associates frogs with demonic spirits. That's our kind of our third clue. So let's put all these clues together. In Scripture, these frogs are associated with death. They're associated with the unclean. And they're associated with demonism. In other words, th this was a sign, this plague was a sign of demonic invasion on the land of Egypt. So, in other words, these unclean spirits whom Egypt worshipped have now turned against them and have flooded the land. And that brings us to our, our third principle. The Lord has ordained that those who give themselves over to unclean spirits will be ruled and ruined by them. 
The Lord has ordained that those who give themselves over to unclean spirits will be ruled and ruined by them. This plague of frogs in Egypt is a type of what God does to a people when they serve unclean spirits. He hands them over to these spirits and they rule and ruin them. And we see this through many proofs in Scripture. Consider proof number one, King Saul. When King Saul turned to evil, what did God do to King Saul? He handed him over to an unclean spirit. 1 Samuel 16, 14, Now the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Proof number two. When Ahab worshipped the false god Baal, what did God do to Ahab? He handed him over to a deceiving spirit. 1 Kings 2, 22, uh, 22, 22, the spirit is saying, it's a conversation between the spirit and the Lord. I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And the Lord said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. And then proof number three, when the Jews had rejected Jesus, when, when he came to earth, Part of the judgment of 70 AD was them being handed over to a host of demonic spirits. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 21, 41 through 45. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. He's speaking about Israel here. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also, Jesus says, will it be with this evil generation. They tried to reform themselves by their own form of religion, clean up their house, as it were, and what God did was he sent spirits back in to punish them. Demonic invasion was a huge part of the judgment in 70 AD. The ancient historian um, Josephus reports in his book, The Jewish War, that this demonism manifests itself in the loss of all ability to reason, the frenzied mobs that attacked one another, the deluded multitudes following after the most transparently false prophets, the crazed and desperate chase after food, the mass murders, the executions, the suicides, the fathers slaughtering their own families, and the mothers eating their own children. End quote. It was hell broke loose on earth. And... Is it so much of a stretch to suggest that this is what we see in Western culture today? Why are, what we are experiencing cannot be explained by naturalistic causes. See past the frogs. There are unclean spirits. What's happening in America is a judgment from the Lord. I mean, just one example. As a nation, we have worshipped the goddess of sex. And what has happened to our nation now? 
Swarms and swarms of sexual perversion have increased so that it's everywhere. You can't go anywhere without stepping on it and having it explode and pop underneath your feet. The frog is seemingly omnipresent. Like the Egyptians, we seem to be in a hopeless situation. How can the land be cured? If God is against us, who can help us? If the Lord of the underworld has sent out these unclean spirits, who can cure it but him alone? And that point is precisely made in in verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. The point here is that they could not cure the land. They could only make it worse. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. We need the true Lord of the underworld, the Lord of lords and the King of kings to rescue us. And that brings us then to our third point. Lord of the new world. I think it goes without saying that the Egyptians were in absolute despair over these frogs. The rabbis speculated that this plague uh, was just as long as the first one. It was seven days. And the psalmist captures how bad it was. Psalm 78, 45. God sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. Other translations say these frogs devastated them. They spoiled them. They overran them. They ruined them. And finally, Pharaoh had enough. Look at verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice the Lord. Immediately this teaches us something. That the king, the most powerful man in the world, could not remove the plague. What the Lord has opened, no man can shut. And so don't miss this. What does Pharaoh do? He asks Moses, the mediator, to intercede for him to remove the plague. Pharaoh promises a lie by saying he'll let the people go. We know that verse 15 demonstrates he went back on his word, but Moses plays along anyway confident that God is in control. And Moses responds in verse 9, be pleased to command me when I'm to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. This is, um, Moses is mocking Pharaoh here. Oh, since you're so powerful, king, be pleased to tell me when you want me to remove these frogs. In essence, he's saying, I give you the honor of picking the time. Pharaoh answers in verse 10, do it tomorrow. And at first, this seems a little bit strange, as if Pharaoh is delaying mercy. But I think what is actually happening here, as John Curd suggests, is that Pharaoh is actually asking for an unreasonable, impossible request. What he's saying is, solve this unsolvable problem by tomorrow. By tomorrow, solve this problem. 
But Moses doesn't bat an eye. He says halfway through verse 10, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. A literal reading of verse 14 and they heaped them up, heaps, heaps. Other translations say they were piled into countless heaps. They gathered them in heaps by heaps. The frogs did die within a day. And the land was rotten with the stench of these unclean beasts. And all of Egypt saw that it wasn't the magi magicians who healed them. It wasn't Pharaoh who healed them. It was the work of a mediator. And that brings us to our third principle. Christ alone can overcome every unclean spirit on our behalf. Christ alone can un overcome every unclean spirit on our behalf. Don't you see... Again, we see a paradigm of the gospel here. What happened to the Egyptians is a picture of us all. Loved ones, we were born with a plague, with an unclean spirit that has defiled us. We're detestable. Job 15, 14, what is man that he should be clean? And just like this plague had attacked every social status in Egypt, the same thing is true about this unclean spirit that whether you're blue collar, white collar, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, high esteem or low esteem, you were born with this unclean spirit. Don't you see? This explains what's wrong with you. You have a wrongness deep down in your bones. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just as these plagues ruin their sleeping and eating, so this plague ruins every single comfort of our life. Every comfort that you enjoy is wrecked if you press it hard enough. It's the cause of husbands and wives fighting. It's the cause of church splits. It's the cause of old age. It's the cause of disease. It's the cause of addiction. It's the cause of every single sorrow and every single affliction. Ecclesiastes 2.23, for all his days are sorrowful. His work is burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. And just as this plague was a bane to the Egyptians' bodies, so it's a bane to our souls. In fact, this unclean spirit is what brings our souls to eternal death. Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. But as for the detestable, their portion will be in that lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's no power on earth 
that can remove this clean spirit from you. Pharaoh can't do it. Kings can't do it. Politicians can't do it. Sorcerers or scientists cannot do it. Technology and policy cannot remove the plague of your soul. Job 14, 14, who can bring a clean thing out of the unclean? There is not one. There's no mere man that can heal you and cure you, but there is a God-man. There is that mediator, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God's only son. He's the great physician. He's the healer of unclean spirits. He's the remover of everything that defiles us. And this was one of his chief works in the Gospels. What do you see him doing over and over again? Cleaning. He cleansed the leper. Mark 1, 40 through 45, a leper came to him and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and was made clean. It was Jesus who cast the demons out of a man. Several occasions, Mark 1, 25 and 27, but Jesus said, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit came out of him. And they were all amazed saying, what is this? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Who commanded the unclean spirits in Exodus chapter 8? The mediator. How does Christ do this? How does Christ remove that defilement from our soul? He is the one who became unclean. He's the one who became the stench. The heaps and heaps and heaps of our sin piled up upon him so that he became the most loathsome object on the face of the earth. He was more defiled than any other man, which is why God the Father couldn't look at him. He forsook him on the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You're a child of God. Jesus removed your uncleanness when nobody else could. What, what has your self-reformation accomplished for you? What has cleaning up your own house ever accomplished for you? I'll just try harder. I'll just quit drinking. I'll just quit smoking. I'll just quit going with girls that do. I will be better. How has that ever helped you? It can't. You don't have the power. You're filled with an unclean spirit. And what Jesus did in his great work is he came and dispossessed you of that spirit. And he did so by going to the cross. All of your uncleanness got piled up on him, got nailed to him on the cross. And if you've trusted in Christ, that means that that plague has already been removed. You're no longer unclean. You're no longer defiled. You're no longer detestable before God. This is why Jesus is Lord of the new world. He's the one who makes all things new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away and all has become new. So here's the takeaway this morning. First, 
If Christ is not your Savior, if you have not called out to him to cleanse you, to forgive you of your sin, then be warned by this passage. You're part of the old, dying world. Pharaoh, in our passage, he found religion when he couldn't heal himself. This is the first time he acknowledges the authority of Moses. But when the Lord removed the plague, he hardened his heart again. Dear unbelieving friend, have you ever done that before? Where you find yourself between a rock and a hard spot, you find yourself in a jam, and, and you've never cried out before, to God before, but you say, Lord, if you just get me out of this, if you just get me out of this hard spot, then I will serve you. And then he does, and you don't. Don't you know the end of the story here? Pharaoh perishes, and you will perish too if you don't turn to Christ. You cannot remove your own uncleanness. You're defiled to the invisible part of your soul. To cry out to God, Son of David, have mercy on me. Cleanse me. Purify me. Make me new. I trust you. I trust your word. I trust what you have done. The scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus is God, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Secondly, our second takeaway, our final takeaway, is to consider how God moved upon Egypt when Moses prayed to him. Moses is a type of the mediator, our Savior, but he's also a type of our Christian duty. What did Moses do? He prayed. And God cleansed Egypt as an answer to that prayer. He prayed, the Lord healed. Moses prayed, the unclean perished. Moses prayed, and the world in Egypt was made new. Yes, it was temporary. Um, but don't miss that this is a type of the, the redemption that God wants to accomplish. For 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The, the Lord of the new world has a plan to make the world new. That's why Jesus instructed us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not a vain prayer that he calls us to pray. Um, Jesus didn't teach us to pray for something that wouldn't come to pass. And so pray. Pray with what we see here in mind. Pray like Moses. If, if God could cleanse the land of, of Egypt, can he not cleanse the land of America? Pray that in Christ, God would reconcile the world to himself. Ask him to remove our uncleanness and defilement. Ask him to move upon the land so that all would know that there was no one like the Lord our God. Amen. Let's pray.